0: Good morning, gents. Uh, great to see you today. We have been uh, looking at the major theme of Peter and his epistles, which is for us to stand firm. Because there's so many things in life that would get us off track, screw up our lives, and uh, take the joy away from us and take the purpose out of our lives and make us ineffective. We have all kinds of things that are threatening to do that. And we're seeing that we, what we really need is that firm foundation we were just singing about. And uh, we started off saying that if you're going to have a firm foundation, you better have good ground to stand on, and that is to know the truth about the truth. And then we need to know the truth about ourselves. And we saw what the Bible says about us. Yes, we're scattered. We're the diaspora. But we're the chosen people of God. He's got his eye on us. We're special to him. And uh, we need to know that in order to have an effect in this world in which we live and to lead effectively. And then we saw we need to know the truth about God, who he is and what he has done. And specifically, what has He done for you? And what difference does His being make in your life on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis? Now, today we want to look at another part of this foundation that was clearly referred to in that hymn. And that is the foundation that teaches us the truth about suffering. And whenever we suffer, and everybody here does, you have your cage rattled. You begin to question basic things in life, oftentimes... And you find that in your suffering, you end up making some of the most important decisions in your life. It's when you're facing financial decline that you're facing your most important decisions. That's how you're going to steer your ship, is when you're in decline. It's when the chips are down that you're going to make your most important contribution to those who know you the best. It's always true. And yet oftentimes, those are the moments we squander, the moments of suffering. And that should not be for someone who, like Peter, is following Jesus Christ. Because Peter discovered that Jesus made his maximum contribution at the moment of his maximum suffering. Peter didn't get it until later. But looking back on it, he realized this exactly what his Lord, Jesus Christ, did for him. He made his maximum contribution during his maximum suffering. And Peter was to discover the same about himself as we shall see, and he's eager to teach us the same thing. Here's a man who saw it in the Lord as an eyewitness. And here's a man who experienced great sufferings himself and was sometimes in his discipleship scared to death, scared spitless. And then he realized, looking back on it, what the Lord was doing in his life. So he's eager to teach us about it. As a matter of fact, when we look through 1 Peter especially, Second Peter to some degree, but first Peter, especially we're going to see that one of the major themes here is getting through suffering successfully. And he directs us in chapter two to the Lord Jesus as an example, as I mentioned. And here he's, he's teaching us about suffering. So let's look at this foundation that we have that doesn't work in every case, except when you're really suffering badly. No, no, no. It works, especially when you're suffering badly. Let's take a look at it from first Peter one verses six through nine. Uh, back up. Let's back up because it kind of ties together. Uh, uh, let's start at verse three to get the context. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power ...until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. First of all, we see in the very part, first part of verse 6 that we rejoice in our hope of salvation. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. And uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 4, we rejoice more than those whose vats are full and who are drinking their new wine. There's a, there's a deep joy in the Christian life. In fact, it's one of the distinctive traits of the Christian life. You find Jesus. You remember when the disciples came back, He sent them out two by two, and they were casting out demons, and they came back just so full of joy. And we are told that Jesus, uh, what, this is the only place where you get it in Luke chapter 10, Jesus filled with joy. Delighted in the fact that God revealed himself not to the wise and to the strong, but to the little children like his foolish little disciples. He took great joy in that, that salvation, ultimate salvation would be offered to these fishermen. So joy issues right out of our plan of salvation. That's the reason that when Peter says that we have this great hope that will never perish, never fade, never spoil, it will be preserved for you. That is where our joy comes from. So that's the foundation for going through life, no matter what the circumstances, with joy, because the destiny is so joyful. The great Puritan John Owen, one of my favorites, uh, speaks of this heavenly mindedness. And he says, you know, it's like if you're on a journey. And, of course, in his days, a long journey was by sea, uh, by ship. And uh, this is back in the 17th century. And he says, you know, if you're on very rough seas, but you're headed to a beautiful island where everything's delightful. He said you, you can tolerate the seas because you know where you're going. And gentlemen, this, this is where the Christian joy comes from. We know where we're going. It's been described sufficiently to us that we know it's glorious. We know we have a great end. And so therefore, basically, in view of that, as Paul says, you cannot compare the sufferings of this present time with the glory that will be revealed in us one day. So we have great joy. It is to be cultivated. And if you happen to be an Eeyore by nature, get over it. I mean, everybody has their own personality. Some of you are more expressive than others. Some of you are naturally sanguine. I'm not talking about natural sanguinity. I'm talking about joy that's rooted in the contemplation of what God is doing for us, has done for us, and will do for us. It's that joy. And those of you who are melancholy by nature, of course, you're going to have a little bit more depressive spirit from time to time. But contemplate the realities in your own way. You know, get happy about it. For, for some of you, that would be, you know, that's fine. When I get happy, I'm doing backflips and, you know, shouting and screaming and everything. The rest of you just smirk. You know, that's fine. But what, however you express joy, that's what it is. It's knowing confidently that God loves you and has provided for you and you're stinking wealthy. That's what it is. You're just sitting there fat and contented, no matter what the circumstances in this life, because we know where we're headed. So we rejoice in the hope of our salvation. We don't just, we don't just talk about it. We don't just believe in it. We actively delight in it. And that's when you've got it, when you actively are delighting in it. You can taste it. It's like an hors d'oeuvre, you know, just get your taste buds going. And the hope of our salvation gets our taste buds going. and We're already anticipating we can actually begin to taste it. That's what it means to believe and to put your trust in Christ. So uh, Nehemiah, you know, as we'll see in those of you in 2nd Presbyterian, we'll, we'll look at it this Sunday morning. When they look at the word of God and grief comes upon the people because of their own sin, they start weeping and wailing. And Nehemiah says, knock it off. He said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Just realize that the joy of the Lord is your strength. You don't have spiritual strength without the joy that comes from contemplating eternal life. That's the reason you must be heavenly minded in order to be any earthly good. So that is your strength. That's your spiritual power. That's the hope that transcends. And, you know, every book you read on leadership says that a leader who's effective in the workplace has got to be what? An optimist. Somebody who sees good outcomes out there. Someone who's basically encouraging people. Well, you can fake it, but if you really want the real thing, you know, follow Christ. You can't help but be an optimist. You can't help but see a rosy end. And in that ultimate rosy end, you see all kinds of outcomes that appear to be positive. So put your hope in the Lord. We are saved in hope, and that hope in which we're saved brings us great joy. So let's get on with it. Uh, Rejoice in our hope of salvation. But here is the major point of this section it's this whole second idea that we want to look look at. And that is we rejoice even in our sufferings. He says we rejoice in this. You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer. But yet you are filled with joy. So he's saying this joy that I'm talking about is not conditioned upon your circumstances. And almost every time we're either happy or sad is conditioned upon particular circumstances, a relationship, the money in your bank or not in your bank, or the weather, for heaven's sakes, or your golf score. Come on, give me a break. Everything that makes us happy or sad has to do with immediate circumstances by and large. And Peter is saying when you're following Christ, there's somebody that comes into your life that invades all that, transcends all that, trumps all that, changes all that. So, yes, we face the same afflictions of life as everybody else, but there's a deep joy that takes us through it. Now, let's look at what he's saying here in in these first couple of verses in 6B and 7A. He's saying that, first of all, we have God's perspective in our sufferings. Though now, all right, though now, though now what? Well, what he's going to show us is there's several aspects to, to the biblical outlook of suffering that are going to frame this for us. So that we can begin to understand it. E- even Nietzsche said that man can endure anything if he knows that his life has meaning. And it's really true, we want meaning in this. You know, when we have this great tragedy that happened right here at the University of Memphis campus. This young man, his life was just snuffed out meaninglessly, it seems, just in a moment. We ask, what is the meaning of it? Is it meaningless? And what we're going to see as we look at this text is your sufferings are not meaningless. They're chock full of meaning. So let's get the perspective that God has. Number one, we suffer only for a little while. Notice how Peter says that. He says, uh, though, uh, where'd you go? Verse six, Uh, though, now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and so on. So he says we suffer only for a little while. Now, look with me. At 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this will be uh, back on page 1876, 1877 actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, Paul here, this is not Peter, this is Paul, and they're speaking the same language. We're going to find all the disciples speak of this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he's trying to encourage the disciples, or encourage the church in Corinth. And he's showing them why they should not be discouraged, no matter what faces them. And they have a lot of things to face. But he gets to the conclusion of this this argument in chapter 4. And look what he says in verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. True. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now look at verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles... Light and momentary troubles. You say, now what were some of these light and momentary troubles? They're being beaten up and imprisoned. Their families were being put to death for the sake of the gospel. How dare Paul call those light and momentary? Because he has perspective. Most people uh, go through this life, their only perspective is the here and the now, from birth to death. You know, in this little half-acre lot I'm living on, and that little path I go to work on, and my business, and the economy, and anything just to, such a narrow view, and you get that perspective, and you're going to suffer a whole lot. You're not going to have the joy of the Lord, I'll tell you that. The only way you're going to have the joy of the Lord is gaining perspective that faces reality as it is. When you're funneled down like that, focused down on you, yourself, and your tribe, and that's it, that's not reality. Reality's a lot bigger than that. So pray, God, give me perspective. He says, OK, all right, all right, yes, I'll give it to you. Your sufferings are only for a little while. They're light and momentary, momentary. And Paul says it in Romans chapter eight, when, when he says our sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's not even to be compared. Don't put them on the same scale because one outweighs the other completely and makes the other one fly up into the air. It's so light not to be compared. It's just for a moment. And of course, you know mathematically, anything compared to infinity is what? Nothing. And if eternal life is indeed eternal, then our sufferings are very momentary. I'm not dismissing or diminishing the pain in the moment. I'm just saying it is only a moment. And it goes like that. And compared to eternity... It is virtually nothing. Peter makes the same comment, of course, in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now notice, secondly, from the text, that we all must suffer. He says, you may have had to suffer grief. Who's you? It's everybody. Everybody suffers. Jesus promises it in Mark chapter 8. You're going to face persecutions. Uh, he, he cites it in Luke 24 when he's talking to the men on the road to Emmaus. In, in Acts fourteen, he's promising us that we're going to face persecutions. Uh, we see it promised throughout the scriptures. In First Peter four twelve, you you can turn there and see what, what Peter says about it. dear friends. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Not, don't don't act surprised. This happens to everybody. It's part of the cosmos. And it's certainly part of discipleship. And when you become a Christian, you're not lifted yet out of the cosmos. You know, you face the same sufferings as everybody else. So when it happens to you, you know, we all just get so shocked. I never thought I would get cancer. I never thought that would happen. I never thought I would lose a loved one. I never thought this would happen to me, so on and so forth. Of course. But it does. To everybody. And Peter's addressing a church that is universally suffering. If there's one thing we can all relate to. One thing we want an answer to is our sufferings, every one of us. Thirdly, notice that we all suffer differently in all kinds of trials or in various trials or in manifold trials, different kinds of trials. Now, you've not suffered anything that Jesus hasn't suffered. He identifies with you completely. He came to this world to identify with you. He came to this world to redeem all your loss, to redeem all your pain. To make it useful. So he entered into it. He understands it. He doesn't have to say, as sometimes pastors do, you know, I've never been there, so I can't... I I, I do sympathize with you, but I can't empathize because I've not experienced just that. Jesus would never say that. He's experienced everything you've experienced. But you haven't experienced everything your neighbor's experienced. And we do have to say, you know, sometimes I just don't understand. I haven't been there. But I'm deeply sorry. But I just haven't experienced it. We all have different sorts of sufferings. And yours... Gentlemen, this is anticipating a little bit where Peter's taking us, but yours is designed. Did you hear the hymn writer? I only design your dross to remove and your gold to refine. So your sufferings are particularly suited for you under the providence of God. And we're going to see this is a unique Christian perspective, biblical perspective. So everybody suffers differently, but everybody who's following Christ suffers this in common, that God has designed our lives, including our sufferings, for our good. And we can simply trust Him with that. In John 21, the text I cite here, you may remember, Peter remember, is being restored to Jesus. He says to him three times, do you love me? Just like Peter denied him three times earlier. Now Jesus asks him three times and allows him to reconnect with Jesus Christ. And Peter says, you know know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep, he says. And then Jesus goes on to describe to Peter basically that he's going to die as a martyr, which is comforting because Peter now is being told, you're not going to deny me again. You're going to die for me. You're going to make it, Peter. But then remember, Peter looks over at John and says, what about him? (laughs) Is that typical or what? What about him? Hey, he's going to die, too. And Jesus basically says, don't worry about him. That's not your business, Peter. John's my, my brother. I'll take care of John. And of course, John died in exile. It was painful, but he was in exile and he died of old age. But We're always wondering, what about the other guy? Why doesn't he have cancer too? Why is it just me? Okay, we understand that's a natural question. Peter asked it. But Peter learned a few years later, we all suffer various trials, and they're designed for each one of us. So we suffer differently in all kinds of trials. Fourthly, to get God's perspective, we suffer according to the will of God. This anticipates a little bit of what, or or recoups a little bit of what I was just saying. He says, these have come so that... Aha, now we're getting to purpose. So in order to get God's perspective, we must see that there is purpose in sufferings, which means, gentlemen, that God has something to do with these. This may be a painful thought for you. I hope by the time this hour is over, it's a very consoling thought for you that God is in this. He is in it. This is not an accident. It's not mechanistic. It's not impersonal. It's not thoughtless. It's not meaningless. God is in it, therefore there's purpose, because everything God does has a purpose. You say, what in the world purpose could this have? Well, I'm glad you asked. We'll address that. But I want you to notice some of the tough cases. Look at Job chapter 2. Now let's turn back in our Bibles. We're going to go through the yellow pages here for just a moment. Look at Job chapter 2. This will be 754, page 754. And here Job has these awful, terrible, no good, horrible things happen to him. He loses his children. He loses his animals. He loses his wealth. He loses his servants. He's got boils all over his body. Poor guy. only thing he doesn't lose is his nagging wife. I'm serious. That's the only thing he didn't lose. And he was thinking, thank you, Lord. And here's his nagging wife in verse 9. And look what kind of spiritual help she is to him. This is chapter 2, verse 9. She says... Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Hey, great advice, honey. That's really wonderful. You want me to curse God, and then you want me to just go on and die? That's a problem when you get a big, big life insurance policy. That's what Job had. Watch out. Now look at his reply. This is remarkable. This has worlds of meaning in this one verse. He replies. And notice he says, you are talking like a foolish woman. He doesn't say you are a foolish woman. Oh, how tactful, Job. (laughs) You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. The Lord giveth. The Lord taketh away in chapter 1. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You talk like a foolish man. Curse God and die and get it over with. Do we accept only good from God and not evil? Not bad? Yes, that's the way we play the game, Lord. We'll accept the good. When the bad comes, we either won't accept it, we'll deny it, we'll blame somebody else, or just say the devil got out of control and God couldn't help it. And that's generally the answer you get. Job has another answer which eventually, if you're familiar with the book of Job, leads to complete healing for him because of his faith. He basically ends up saying at the bottom of the pit, though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust him. I'll trust him with the good things, and I'll trust him with the bad things. Look at how Jeremiah puts it in Lamentations. Let's turn to that text, Lamentations three thirty-eight. I know you're doing your devotions in Lamentations this morning. It follows Jeremiah which means you're going to be on page 1298. And here is Jeremiah writing from the depths of Jerusalem's despair. She had just been ransacked by Babylon. Not one stone on top of another. Women raped and murdered. Children ripped out of the womb of their mothers and put to death. Awful, horrible destruction. Taking place in Jerusalem. What does a man have to say about this? Well, look at Lamentations 3, and the whole book is a lament. That's what it means, Lamentations. And if you look at verse uh, uh, 37, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Whoops. You mean the Lord decreed our destruction? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High, verse 38? That both calamities and good things come? Is that not awesome? He's saying, is not God in charge of the calamities as well as the good times? Let the good times roll. Let the bad times roll. Is not God equally in charge of both? This is a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. Yes. He is in charge of both. And the text in Isaiah that I cite, you see the same thing. Now, you say, I'm not sure I can buy this. I mean, I was, my mama taught me God is good. He would never do anything evil. Well, it is true that there is, there is no evil in God. He is not the source of evil. He doesn't cause it. But, gentlemen, he controls it. And let me give you the classic event in Acts 2.23. This is page 1757. And here is Peter preaching on Pentecost. This is the same Peter who is saying that our sufferings are according to the will of God. And he's he's no doubt in his own mind thinking about the ultimate evil in the world and what part God played in it. Look at verse 22. He says to these men at Pentecost, men of Israel, this is Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you. Handed over to you by whom? By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Does that mean you're excused and are not responsible? No. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do You see what Peter is saying? You're responsible for that death. But ultimately, God the Father handed him over to you out of his set purpose and foreknowledge from all eternity. Go figure. It's a mystery. And you're not going to figure it out. There's no mathematical formula. There's no way you can get your mind around it. There's no way you can comprehend it. All you can do is apprehend it, as we saw earlier in the mystery of election. Here you have one of the deepest ministries in the Bible. But it's true that God does not cause evil. He's not the source of evil. But, gentlemen, He rules over it. If you could explain the source of evil, it wouldn't be as evil as evil is. One thing that makes evil so evil is that it's completely irrational. What rational being would bring in a total rebellion to a sovereign God who can destroy you in a moment? Does that make any sense whatsoever? No, it makes no sense. That's the reason it cannot be explained. It's completely irrational. But having come here, evil, in the person initially of the serpent in the garden, where the serpent came from, who knows, but evil having come into the cosmos, now we see how Lord, the Lord... Completely dominates it and uses it for his purposes. And that's what's being taught us here. Even in the worst of moments, the most evil thing that ever happened in the world was that Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. The Prince of Glory was crucified. That's the height of evil. And that was done by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So, what do you think about the evil in your life? Think God has anything to do with it? Yeah. Set purpose, foreknowledge. Okay? For a purpose. Now, let's take just a moment to get a little philosophical here. And we're calling this the Christian theodicy. What is a theodicy? Well, theodicy, if you look at that word, it comes from two Greek words. Theos, which means God. And di- dikia, or dikia, which means righteousness, which means the justification of God. So a theody, theodicy justifies God in the face of evil. So a theodicy is an explanation of evil in this world and how we're going to justify God with this evil here. And there are all different ways that people try to do this. What I would like to try to offer this morning is what I'm going to call the Christian or biblical theodicy. Now, we don't know where evil comes from, as we said, but we do know some things. We don't know where it comes from, but we know some things. Number one, behind all of our suffering is natural evil. That is, we live in a broken world. We are in the dispersion. We are aliens and strangers, but we are aliens and strangers in the world. And it is broken. And part of that brokenness was in your genes the moment you were conceived. So you were conceived as a broken, fallen person. So all of our suffering, behind all of our suffering, is our, our citizenship in this world, our belonging to it in a certain way. Secondly, behind all natural evil is moral evil perpetrated by Adam and Eve. And you turn to Genesis chapter 3 and you get the case there. That the reason the world is fallen is because moral beings rebelled against God. There's a reason behind this, and Moses explains it in Genesis 3. If you want to know why life is so difficult, why life sucks, Genesis chapter 3 shows you why life sucks. Because God put a curse on the ground. And He cursed the devil. And there was a curse on man. And women will labor and groan in childbirth. And men will toil in their work and get frustrated. Because as Paul says in Romans 18... The whole world was subjected to frustration. By whom? By the one who made it. So God subjects the world to frustration because of the moral rebellion against Him. It's a personal rebellion against Him that leads to the natural evil. So you're suffering because of what we call natural evil. Tsunamis, hurricanes, bad economies, car accidents, guns firing off. Behind all that is a moral rebellion against the Lord. That's explained clearly in Genesis 3. Behind all moral evil is a fallen creature, a tempter, who is a personal evil adversary of human beings. And his name is Satan. That's part of the Christian theodicy. It's personalized. Evil is not an impersonal force. It's not just kind of a mechanistic, you know, the as is the... Is the Atheistic scientists were giving their best explanation for the tsunami about three years ago. The Burma plate, you know, came against the Indo plate. And that's all it is. And, of course, everybody else is trying to explain it. Isn't it interesting where this tsunami took place? You know, we had the Muslims who were saying, you know, Allah is ticked. You had the Buddhists who were saying people are not walking the way. And after all, this is all an illusion anyway. And then... You have the Hindus who say it's bad karma. Everybody's trying to explain it. Everybody's got an explanation for a tsunami. What's our explanation? That there's, a, there's natural evil because of a, a moral evil that was perpetrated initially by a personal being who hates God and hates his creatures. This is an embittered battle to the very end between God and Satan and between his people and Satan. Now, behind Satan is a permissive decree of God. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And as we saw in the text we just read, this is the case. If we want to look back for just a moment at the Isaiah text, uh, that would be uh, Isaiah 45, 7. And you'll get this on page 1154. Isaiah speaks for the Lord who says... I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create rah in Hebrew, which just means evil, disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So, He is decreeing, He is bringing about the suffering by a decree. We call it a permissive decree because God is not the source of evil. As Habakkuk says, he cannot tolerate wrong. God is holy. He cannot look upon evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. In him there is no shadow of turning whatsoever. There is no darkness in God whatsoever, says John in in his first epistle. So the Bible teaches clearly God is light. No darkness, no evil. Once again, once the mystery of the presence of evil is into this world, then he completely controls it. And he you can say as Isaiah that he creates disasters. That is, he he allows evil to function. Evil cannot function without the permissive sovereignty of God. And even in God's eternal decree, for reasons that we'll get to in a moment, he permits it. Now we speak of his active decree, when we speak of his gracious election of his people, his decree to send his own son, His decree to bring this world to a glorious end, we speak of His active decree. We speak of a permissive decree because of the mystery of evil itself. So whenever it has to do with evil, we consider it a permissive decree. So behind it is the very hand of God, as we've seen in the texts that are before us. Now, what's behind that? Behind God's decree is His purpose to glorify Himself. You say, isn't that selfish? It would be selfish if you wanted to glorify yourself because you're not worth glorifying in your fallen state. Why would we want to glorify sin? You know, why would we want to glorify failure? But if you are perfect, yes, you will be glorified. As a matter of fact, you will, because one day you will be perfect and you will be glorified. God has from eternity been perfect. Therefore, he is to be glorified. And the ultimate purpose of suffering is to glorify God. Now let me tell you how this contrasts with the way that most Christians in this country think and most Christians in this century think about the reasons for evil in life. Here's how the argument goes. In order for human beings to have choice, real choice, there had to be good and evil. Otherwise you wouldn't have a choice. And therefore, you wouldn't really be free to make that choice between good and evil. So in order for you to be free, you had to have a choice between good and evil. And people even point to the Garden of Eden. See, Adam had choice because he had the possibility of good and the possibility of evil. And if you're going to be as free as Adam was, you must have both. isn't Don't you commonly hear this argument? I know you hear this argument if you study or think about it at all, because I have 57 books in my library that speak about evil. Fifty-four of them are written in the 20th century. And all 54 of them except one use that argument. And I'm suggesting to you it's wrong. It's a man-centered argument. Instead of theodicy, it's anthropodicy. It's justifying man. In order for me really to be a man, we must have evil. That is a out, an outcome of the enlightenment, which said that man is the measure of all things. And therefore, to explain anything, we have to explain it in light of your desires to be free. Well, guess what? Enlightenment is not about you. And there's only one free being in the universe. Everybody else is contingent. And the one free being is the living God. And there's only one perfect being in the universe. And it is not you. It is the living God. And there's one goal of the entire universe. And guess what? It's not you. The goal is God and His glory. And when you begin to look back even into the 19th century, you can take, for example, um, uh, W.T. Shedd, the Baptist theologian. Or you could take Dabney or Hodge, the Presbyterian theologians. You find them giving you a different outlook on this. And they'll say, no, ultimately, for reasons we don't completely understand, the purpose of the presence of evil is to glorify God. And here's how you know this is true. Let me ask you a question. When you get to heaven, will you be free? You say, well, yeah, I will never have been freer in my whole life. Will evil be there? No. No. Will the possibility of evil be there? No. Do you see what God is doing with evil? As painful as it is, do you see? I don't know all the reasons for evil. That's a mystery. But I know some of the reasons because it's in the Bible. Do you know Adam was free and he was choosing only good and he was really free until he chose evil and then he was in bondage? And do you know what's going to happen with us at the end of the day? We're going to be better off than Adam was. God is turning this whole thing on its head so that ultimately in His theodicy, we not only justify God, but we glorify ourselves. Because we are moving to a promised land, Beulah. The pleasant land where we will no longer even be able to sin. And we will be confirmed, not only in righteousness, but in permanent, glorious freedom. And Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation is groaning in travail until what? Until she gains her freedom. And this is what it is, to be free of evil and to be free of the possibility of evil. And God, through His redemptive plan, working through the courses of history, with all the sufferings and griefs and sorrows, He is bringing us to that glorious end. He will glorify Himself. And ultimately, only then, gentlemen, will He in all of His resplendent array destroy evil and suffering. And that's what I call a plan. We can work with that. That is the Christian theodicy. So, contrary to what most evangelical apologists and philosophers are saying about the reason for evil, Ultimately, the purpose of evil is to glorify God. Just look at Romans 9, when Paul talks about the destruction of Pharaoh. He says, what if God did this to display the glory of his wrath against sin? So who are you, O clay, to argue against the potter who made you? God is in charge of all history, and he's bringing it to an end to glorify himself because he is worthy to be glorified. And only in his glory then will we see the final triumph over evil. There's the perspective we're working with. All right. Now mentally we're equipped. Now let's move to the verses seven through nine, and we're going to see. Not only do we have God's perspective in our sufferings, but we have God's purpose in our sufferings. Purpose, its purposes, even for now as well as later. First of all, He proves our faith genuine. Your your faith of greater worth than gold will be proved genuine. That means it will prove out, it will, it will show itself to be genuine, but it also means it will cause it to be genuine. It will shape it and mold it so that it's genuine. You know how gold is refined? It's through a fire. And when you put the heat under the crucible, all the junk in the gold rises to the top. I grew up in the steel business, so I've seen these BOFs, you know, with this big rod come down into that 300-ton vat of molten iron and blow oxygen out at twice the speed of sound but it's a huge explosion and it burns for 18 minutes. Just a continual explosion. It's the most dramatic thing you'll see, I think, in American industry. And then when it's all over, what do they do? These big cranes mm, tip that ladle over and pour off the top part of it as dross. All the impurities rise to the top. Same way with gold and a little crucible. You fire it up, And to the top will come the dross and just rake it off. And that's how you purify the gold. Now, this is what Peter is saying. Don't you see? Your sufferings are strengthening your faith because the dross weakens the gold, makes it less valuable. Your sufferings are making your faith more valuable. How many times have you said, I've heard some of you say it, I thought I had pretty strong faith (laughs) until you got into this suffering and you realize how weak and helpless you realize how, how, how deep your doubts ran. You realize how quickly you were able to get mad at God and call him names. You, know? you, you realize how testy your spirit was when you started to suffer. You realize how shallow your faith was. Okay, fine. You know, that's the beginning. You're not going to strengthen it until you realize that you had all kinds of dross in there. What does the suffering do? Take that dross out. You get through your suffering, and what do you do? You come back and you you say things like this, like one of you did to me this week. You wrote me an email, and you said, God has brought us much blessing through my cancer. I never knew how much I was depending on myself to make things happen. Cancer is teaching me to rest in Him, and that is a blessing I would not want to miss. I get emails like that all the time. I get comments from you like that all the time. It was only through my suffering that I saw the shallowness of my faith, and then I saw what real faith is. It's faith that hangs on to God even when you have nothing else to hang on to. That's what you had in the first place. And then it strengthens it, and then you build on that. It's like pruning a bush. You're going to get much better flowers, much better roses when you clip it and prune it. And you're getting it back to the the healthy bush. And then it grows and flowers. Same thing with your faith. That's what's going on, gentlemen. And as an example of this, you can see this clearly in Mark chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to remind you of the story in Mark chapter 4 where Peter was with the disciples in the storm. And you remember, the storm comes and they're almost swamped. And lots of people lost their lives on the Sea of Galilee with these quick storms that would come down over the mountains and hit that thing. These squalls were no jokes. These were like hurricanes and they would be uh, you know, thrown overboard or, or swamped. And they would drown. They happen all the time in the Sea of Galilee. The bottom of that lake is full of dead men's bones. And Peter was terrified. And Jesus was doing what? Sleeping on a pillow in the back of the boat. The only place in the Scriptures where you have Jesus sleeping is when these guys are in their worst storm. And that's the way it feels. Jesus is asleep. Where is He? Well, you've got to give Peter credit. At least he knows who to go to. And he wakes Jesus up. And you know what he says to him? Don't you care? Have you ever said that to God? Don't you care? Well, of course you said that to God. Or you thought it. That's a stupid thing that we say when we get into sufferings. Don't you care? Don't you care? Jesus is going to be spread eagle naked on a cross in a few days. Don't you care? It's ridiculous. But that's the way you feel. Peter goes to him and says, don't you care? Jesus rises up and says, be still. And that storm is completely silenced. The waves are gone. The wind has ceased. And Jesus says to him, what's the matter, boys? Do you have no faith? <laughs> oh, it's terrible. He's just got a terrible sense of humor. And, uh, and he says, where was your faith? So you see what Jesus is doing with him. He's refining his faith in the midst of that storm and then challenging him. Okay, now let's go back. Let's replay that tape, boys. Now, let's see. What was it you said just a few minutes ago? Don't I care? I believe that's what you said. Now, what does that say about what, how you were... You see how he was helping them analyze the fact. And through Mark, you get this refrain. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? And Jesus is giving you sufferings so that he can say to you, where is your faith? And you start looking around and you say, you know what? I thought I had some.
1: <laughs> but it wasn't as
0: big as I thought it was. And then you realize the faith that you had was to wake up Jesus. And then you realize... That's all you needed. That little teeny faith that you finally realize you had when you get in your sufferings and you realize, you know what? It's not the size of my faith. It's the object of my faith that makes all the difference in the world. And you realize how gracious God is to give you His Son with such little faith. It's an amazing story. But that's the purpose of our suffering is to refine us. And then secondly... You notice that he bestows on us praise, glory and honor at the last day. and I've given you some texts there that speak of the crown and the reward that's coming our way, and it's through our sufferings that this is being accomplished. If we were to look at Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 16 through 18, the text we looked at a moment ago, and I've cited up there in number one, you'd see that Paul says, "Our light and momentary afflictions are, listen to this, achieving for us." An eternal weight of glory. Our sufferings are not just endured, gentlemen. Our sufferings are cherished. Because they're achieving something. They're working out something. They're producing something. And Paul says in Romans 5, they're producing character and hope. Our sufferings are functional. They're not accidents that simply get in your way. They're where their whole game is being played. It's what God is up to. And He will one day bestow on us praise, glory, and honor. It will result in praise, glory, and honor. Or you could look at it this way. Number three, He prepares us to give Him praise, glory, and honor. Which is frankly my... Preferred way of looking at this. It may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There will be praise, glory, and honor for us because we'll look like Him. Let me tell you something about your sufferings. If we go back to that story in Mark chapter 4. Do you remember after Jesus stilled the storm and said, where is your faith? Do you remember what they said? Who is this? Well, you know who it is. Is Jesus, the carpenter, rabbi. No, hold on just a minute. Who is this really? I know, the, I know the carpenter stuff and I know the rabbi stuff. I know the miracle worker stuff. I don't know the God stuff about stealing storms, which only God can do. Who is this that just got in the boat with us? And you find out back in verse 35, they took him in the boat just as he was. That was their mistake. And you know what you and I do? We take him just as he is in his humiliation in the Gospels. We take him in his flesh. We take him just as us. We don't take him as Revelation chapter 1, where his face is more resplendent than the sunshine, and when John saw him, he fell down as though dead. We don't take him like that. We took him as he was. And that was the disciples' problem. They end up saying, Who is this? And, gentlemen, let me tell you something. All your sufferings are, as it were, spring-loading you for the day when you'll burst forth in praise and you'll say, when you see Him at the revelation of His glory, Who is this? I thought I knew Him. Look at the resplendent glory of His being and His character. Look at me and what He's done for me. Who is this? And what Peter is saying, that your sufferings are working in you, The ability to give Him praise, not only now, but later on in that day. That's the reason the Christian perspective is an eternal perspective. And without eternity, you cannot possibly understand your sufferings. There's a long purpose being worked out in the same direction. That you will meet the Lord with nothing but praise on your lips. And then fourthly, He fills us with inexpressible joy with joy unspeakable and full of glory, as the KJV says, and I have to, I have to say I prefer that language. Why? Well, we have joy because we, we love Him and we believe in Him even though we don't see Him. When, when Thomas said, I want to see His hands and His sides, and then he saw His hands and His side, and he said, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said, Blessed, blessed are you because you've seen and believed. Others will not see, and they will believe, and they'll be blessed too. So you've not put your hands into His scars. And Jesus says you're blessed when you believe and you didn't see. And you do believe even though you didn't see. And you love Him even though you've never laid hands on Him. And that is a work of God's grace in our lives. We have Him. He is ours. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then we also see it's not by faith, not by sight only, but it's by the Spirit. You are receiving the goal of your faith. That is The Spirit is God's down payment to you. That's the language that's used. It's the language of earnest or down payment. And Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians and in Ephesians. We're sealed by the Spirit, who is that hors d'oeuvre, that down payment. And so the joy that's rising up in us is organically connected to the outburst of joy that we're going to have on the last day. So the joy you have is already an eschatological joy. It's the joy of the end time that's come into the present. And that's the reason that you have a taste of eternity already, because the Spirit has come into you. If you put your trust in Christ, He baptizes you with His Spirit. And you can taste these things. And it draws you through life. And you have a sense of His His gracious purpose in your life. Now, what difference does this make? What's the so what? We've got two minutes to talk about this. First of all, get rid of your old grumpy self. Let's do some business today. What right do you have to be grumpy? What right do you have to be a cynic? What right do you have to be down in the mouth? What right do you have to be a pessimist? Please explain that to me in the scope of Christian theodicy. Secondly, count your blessings, name them one by one, and include your sufferings. That doesn't mean that we're Pollyannish. We say, oh boy, God, thank you. My arm is about to fall off. It hurts so bad. I'm just so grateful for this hurting arm. No, no. But God, I'm grateful that in the midst of this deep pain I have in my left arm that I know You're working Your purposes out to make me like Your Son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice in our sufferings. The apostles teach us. Thirdly, look for blessings in your sufferings. Look for them. If they're there by promise, then you have a right to look for them. You won't find everything. Some of these things are like needles in a haystack, but you'll find a few needles. You won't find them all. But go looking for them. If God is gracious in our sufferings, you ought to expect to be able to have some sense of it. I remember visiting Ms. Richardson when she was on her deathbed in the hospital. And I said, Ms. Richardson, what's your favorite hymn? She said, oh, I'll tell you not only my favorite hymn, I'll tell you my favorite line. And through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, but I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. We just sang a moment ago. So learn to look for blessings in your sufferings. Then lastly, get ready for the fireworks. <laughs> get ready, guys. It's coming. And uh, really, worship today is just we're, just, we're getting warmed up. These are just the warm-ups. We're getting ready for a huge explosion that's going to take place. And those of you who in God's economy, for whatever reasons known to Him alone, have suffered more than the rest of us, You're going to be the choir leaders. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gifts to us. And we would even have faith this morning to thank you for the gift of suffering of various types. For we know that we need it because there's much dross in our lives. We need it because there's much sadness in our lives. And we need the hope of glory to fill our hearts and give us joy again this morning. Please help us in the midst of our sufferings to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.